I don't know about you, but I love Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, because we celebrate, we know the truth that Christ is risen. He has risen indeed. Amen, church? Except for this poor church who received this sign over the last uh, month or so, as you see on the screens right here, where for their church, Chris has risen, okay? And I don't know who Chris is, if there's a specific kind of reason why only he is going to uh, be able to have the resurrection. We do have a, an amazing Chris here who helps uh, co-lead our college ministry with his wife, but I'm not going to put it on the sign anywhere uh, to point him out instead of you guys. But we know that Christ has risen, giving us the resurrection as we just got done singing. So happy Resurrection Day, Gospel Collective Church. If you are just joining us, uh, we are wrapping up a several-month sermon series in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Genesis. And it's been amazing, not just comparing these well-known characters, whether you grew up in church or not. I'm sure you've heard of them from Adam and Eve and Moses um, uh, to, uh, not Moses, I'm sorry, uh, Noah to Abraham. Uh, and not just uh, kind of finding the moral lessons in their stories, but more than anything, finding the gospel of Jesus in it. And as amazing and beautiful and as needed as that has been uh, this Easter morning, we want to briefly study the Old Testament again and specifically see the resurrection in it on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, sometimes uh, the Old Testament will get a bad rap. Uh, we have modern preachers trying to unhinge it from the New Testament. Uh, but overall, it's all the same authority and status of what we read and what is revealed in the New Testament. And although it can be a hard book at times, or as we learned when studying the book of Genesis, an awkward book at times, it is truly an amazing book from Genesis to Revelation, especially when you read it and study it with Jesus in mind. It's even more amazing when you see how it foretells, it reveals what we celebrate today. The gospel of Jesus Christ and how that is fulfilled in the resurrection. So this morning on Easter Sunday, we'll be in the Old Testament once again. Uh, next week, we'll be starting the book of Th 2 Thessalonians. Um, and, uh, uh, what, what, but where we find ourselves this morning, uh, we'll be in the oldest book of the Bible, even older than Genesis, what we've been studying the last three months, the book of Job. So if you have your Bibles, whether it's a tablet, whether it's a physical copy, we will have the scripture on the screen. Uh, go ahead and open up to the book of Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19. Uh, the name and character that we're going to be reading from Job um, is related to the Hebrew word for enemy with reference to either Job's attitude to God or his response to suffering in the majority of this book. In fact, some have said, some commentators have said that that name might also be a contracted Hebrew form of where is my father, which makes sense again with some of the questioning and some of the doubts that he had. This also appears to be one of the oldest recorded Bible references to what we meet here today and celebrate the resurrection. I want to give quick background to this book before we read our scripture today. The events of the book seem to be set in the times of the patriarchs, many of the characters that we learn in the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And in this tough book, Job was described as a man who was blameless, upright, and he feared the one true God 
and he turned away from evil. He was very blessed with land, with livestock, with family, all while staying true to the one true God and faithful in his offerings and sacrifices to the Lord, obedient to him, and even making such sacrifices to repent of any of his sin or his family's sin. And in a rare glimpse of verbal exchanges between Satan and that one true God that he worshipped, Satan, who rebelled from that God, asks God if he can take every earthly thing away from Job. He says, yeah, of course he's obedient to you. Yeah, of course he worships you. Because you've given him everything. You've blessed him in all these ways. If I take everything away... He wouldn't say the same. He wouldn't do the same. He wouldn't view you as the same. And so God tells Satan he can do that. He tells him he, will take, he can take those things away and we'll see if he will curse me. Which, let's be honest, if that happens to many of us, many of us probably would curse him. And God tells him you can do anything but take his life away. And that's exactly what sadly Satan did. His possessions had been taken. Job's kids were killed in their house as it fell on them. All of his livestock died. His physical health deteriorates. His wife even tells him to curse God and die. His church friends, what would be his gospel community, accuse him of hidden sin amongst all these tragedies and saying this has to be consequences from some type of sin of yours. You must repent as he continues to mourn. Yes, question, yes, doubt at times, but still say, I'm a man who fears the Lord and I have not done anything wrong. In fact, most of this book is the dialogue between Job, his three friends, and God in light of all such And in that questioning, in that defending, in that searching, Job asks some very important questions that some of you have asked, that the rest of the Bible has answers to. In fact, one of those questions pertains death. In Job 14, 14, he says, If a man dies, shall he live again? Job knows when he asks this, That death is permanent because just a few verses before in chapter 14, verse 10 and 11, he says, But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last. And where is he? As waters fell from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up. And and that once he passes, he knows he will be unable to plead with God that he did nothing wrong. You take a few verses even before verses 10 and 11. And he asks this, he says, and do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you, talking to God? He says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Job even calls God's goodness into question by stating that even righteous men cannot plead their case before him in Job 9. That his sin, he knows, will keep him endlessly trapped in the grave Because the only currency that can pay for sin is death, as we know from Romans 6.23. And Job just cannot bring himself to deny what he knows to be true. That the Lord is perfectly just with all rights and all wrongs. 
And as he's an upright man who experiences suffering, Job begins to see that the Lord's righteousness does require a final reckoning after the grave. That his innocence must be vindicated. And the fact that there's a little hope that it will happen even in this lifetime that he realizes at that time does not mean that God is overlooking him. That his vindication might even occur after he dies. And this leads us to the purpose of Easter for the church. You see, he has hope, belief, and a resurrection and final judgment in which will hold him accountable for sin and who he knows and what he has in judgment of that sin. Job, therefore, looks forward to this resurrection to be restored to the land of the living after his death and seeing the Lord. Job recognizes early, even in the midst of the defending, even in the midst of his questioning, even in the midst of his mourning and doubting, that the only possible resolution to sin and the consequences of it is the resurrection. And for this reason... In Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, he declares with the utmost confidence. Read with me if you have your scriptures. Again, it's going to be on the screen, the TV's before me if you're watching from home. It'll be right next to me. Job says this, chapter 19, starting off with verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed yet in my flesh i shall see god whom i shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another my heart faints within me the oldest book, written book of the Bible. Job refers to a future resurrection. From these three verses comes three important needed truths for both Job at this time and us. What has been said, the first prototype of the resurrection in Scripture as it displays that faith and vindication that we all yearn for and need. First, we see in verse 25 this. We see confidence in a needed Redeemer. I'll read this again. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Now before explaining and showing our need and confidence of the Redeemer, I want to show you something kind of funny related to this one verse right here. Last week in prep for this sermon, I was actually listening to Handel's Messiah Part 3, which opens with this scripture. It opens with This very verse, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And so while I was listening to it while doing some sermon prep one morning, my youngest daughter, who is seven, starts yelling from the other room, will you turn off that weird woman singing? And I'm like, 
what are you talking about? And so I, I called her into the room that I was writing and I recorded our conversation for your pleasure and her future grief when this comes back and haunts me as it's being recorded right now. So just a quick one minute video. Listen to our exchange about this beautiful song that starts off with, for I know that my redeemer lives. Go ahead and play the video, Peter. I should join the worship band. Okay, so if you couldn't hear that little exchange, it was pretty much her saying she doesn't like any type of rap music, any type of opera music, and any type of screaming music because it's not English and she can't understand it, okay? But despite how my seven-year-old feels about opera, this is a very important and beautiful word from God. Job starts off saying something peculiar and ironic in comparison to anything you've read to that point in this book. He says, for I know. And listen, this isn't pride here. This isn't his cockiness. If anything, up to this point in context, Job has been anything but confident and sure. He's been complaining. He's been in doubt. He's been pleading and begging with his friends to believe him and for God to either kill him or to save him. In fact, when defending himself to his friend just a few verses before, in the same conversation, listen to what Job says. Remember, everything's been taken away. His friends are telling him, Repent of your sin. His wife's saying, curse God and die. Look what he says in this same chapter, this same conversation, starting with verse 9. He says, Job says, he has stripped from me my glory and taken the crowd from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone and my hope hey, has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary, another word for enemy. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege, ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife. No more kisses. And I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Family reunions are tough. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. No more kid cuddles. I don't know if I'd be able to survive. 
all my intimate friends abhor or hate me. And those whom I love have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? I have to ask, does that sound like a man of confidence? No, not at all. But in a sudden turn of heart and spirit, he says in verses 23 and 24, mark my words, record this, inscribe it on your tablets, put it in the cloud, because we know the internet's forever. You can come back. And he says, verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Again, let's break this down. First off, this word that's mentioned here, the oldest book of the Bible, Redeemer. It's one of my favorite words in all of Scripture. I have to admit, it's definitely in the kind of trendy, cool, Christian lingo category. It's the trendy buzzword that's often used with other Christians. There are similar words that Christians like to use and not everybody even understands it. Organic, visioneering, breakthrough, missional, authentic, genuine, raise the bar, messy, Sharing life together. And I like some of those words, okay? I'm not trying to make fun of them. I love missional sharing life together. Please stop overusing them so we can continue using them. But redeeming things, redeemer, is probably one of those. But if you understand this in its context, that when he mentions and says this, they know he's talking about what they had at that time, a kinsman redeemer who is the closest relative who redeems both land, family, children when an Israelite man dies and fails to leave a son behind. This was the male relative who, according to various laws found in the Pentateuch, who had the privilege, the responsibility to act for such other relatives who was in trouble, who was in danger, who was in need of vindication. And so in that way... It's used to take to what has been used for evil or bad to work toward what's good, toward what's God's mission, to what's going to be redeemed. And remember, up to this point, after Satan took everything away from Job, everything in Job's life that has been bad, all of his possessions has been gone, his children have died, no future legacy to leave, his wife telling him to curse God, questioning his integrity, his church friends ignorantly accusing him of sin. But Job, what he says, I know God can and will redeem. says, for I know that my Redeemer, in spite of everything that has happened to him, my, a personal relationship with God, the one who has created everything, the one who has the power and authority and judgment, the one 
that he knows still loves him is in control over such hard things. My Redeemer, such intimacy, even in those two words, lives. He's alive. You know, up to this point, all Job has experienced is death, his decay, his loss and sorrow. And he has hope for life in this Redeemer. And he says, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. We know that this Redeemer can be no less than God himself. This thought that in the heart of God himself there is a Redeemer for him fills his heart with awe. We know that Job's hope is sure because centuries later, Jesus Christ, the one whom Job foreshadows here, died with this same hope. That the Father was the Redeemer even of Jesus, who stood at Jesus' tomb, raised Him from the dead with the Holy Spirit, and as the proof that He will do this for every man and woman in Christ, Jesus is now the Redeemer of us. It's why Titus 2, 13-14 says, as we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, we receive that Redeemer who lives when we recognize in our sin sin that we've been born with, sin that we at times choose, that that sin separates us from a holy, loving God that created us for himself. And whether you feel like your life is amazing or like Job and everything's been taken away, we are in need of a redeemer because you still have that sin. And God sent his son, Jesus, who Job is foreshadowing here, to come Take that sin and its consequence, death, both spiritual and physical, upon himself on the cross. He lived a perfect life so that he can be the perfect sacrifice and die the death that we deserve on the cross. And then what we talk about today, three days later, he rose from the grave. What we celebrate today, proving and showing that he is God. Because only God can defeat death. And he offers us that hope, that redemption, that relationship with what we were created for in the first place, to have a relationship with the Lord, to be able to worship him and live with him and have eternity with him. When we turn and repent of our sin and have saving faith in Christ as that Savior and Redeemer. And he says, I know. I can't but help to think, if you've been familiar with Prepare to Share here, the verse that we've memorized, 1 John 5, 13, where John with such confidence says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I know he has redeemed me. He has saved me. He has forgiven me. He has taken what was dead and given me new life. 
that although I still will sin, he looks and sees not me, but his son Jesus when I've received them in my heart and life through repentance and faith. And he sees nothing but his son and he walks with me in continued struggle in life. He sanctifies me. He makes my heart anew for his desire and will. And as it says here, makes me zealous for good works. Oh, how we desire such confidence in that redemption that you can only receive in Jesus. And I can't but help to think when I, when I think of this word and why I love it so much. And, and even my wife and I's testimony, I can't but help to think of this one word, redemption, because of Jesus. I know some of you guys have gone to church here and some of you guys may be new, and I'm not going to go into full detail, but both, both my wife, Jessica, and I have gone through really, really hard family struggles. And we both did not know the Lord until later in teenage years. And by that time, we both had experienced a lot of sin, of death, very hard things. And I can't but help to think how Jesus Christ, when hearing that message, at first rebelling against it, at first mocking it, at first denying and being antagonistic toward it, but then later grabbing a hold of my heart when I was revealed as that sinner in need of a Savior. And by the time I was in high school, finally receiving it myself. The same thing happening with my wife Jessica as a middle schooler. And then by the time that we met and we got married in college, by God's grace, although we're nowhere near perfect and our family is nowhere near perfect, for the first time for both of us, we were from a very young age able to start teaching our kids and living a life to show and share that great Redeemer. We're all yearning for that redemption. What is bad? What has been broken down? What we are struggling with? To be made new. Not only did he have confidence in a needed redeemer that comes through Jesus Christ. He has hope in a future resurrection. Look at verse 26. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Job, when saying this one verse, has some literal skin in the game. Or maybe I should say what's left of it. For it says in Job chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, one of the things that was taken from him was his actual health and skin. Verse 7 of Job 2 says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet, to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. There's a picture right here of a wooden statue that was unearthed from Germany in 1875 to, to 1850, somewhere around there, of this. There's actually even a disease that's similar to what it says here, a horrific disease that's named after Job. 
Job does not know how God is going to do it, but he believes and knows in his heart, although he doesn't know how, that somehow God will raise him from the dead. That through it all, Job maintains that God is right, even though he seems to be allowing Job to suffer for no reason. But he knows he's going to have a new glorified body. And the only way for God to be right that makes sense to Job is that there must be, there will be a resurrection. This is very similar to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It's 58 verses, one chapter on the resurrection. And in verses 42 to 44, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. A resurrected body and soul. I know I've used this quote when preaching on that very chapter in the summer, but I want to read this quote again. In fact, the second song we, we sang has some references to it and the worship leaders that helped write that song and the great catechism question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Keith and Kristen Getty answered it in this way. For centuries, believers have learned the Christian faith beginning with that question. It's the first article in the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. Why start there? Because death is our common fate. And unless Jesus returns first, we will all die. To find comfort in life, we must know how we can face death. And hope comes only in trusting the one who died to take the curse of death and who crushed the power of death by his resurrection. Christ has been raised from the dead. That is the only statement that can transform how we live each day and how we prepare for our earthly life to end. Christ has been raised from the dead. The hope of the resurrection, it should spur us, whether it's to sing it, to live it, to believe it, to find comfort in it. Just like it comforted Job. And then last of all, we see in verse 27, awe and affection and a final presence with God. He says in verse 27, Whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. This is a worship from Job that we were all created for. That at times, sadly, it goes toward other things that will let us down. Functional, false saviors that we put before God. Anything from a relationship to a job. That we put these other things or these other people before God and they don't satisfy, they don't fulfill, they don't save us like we were originally thinking or hoping. Even when he says, whom I shall see for myself, that right there. Is him saying, I will see, I will enjoy, have an unspeakable comfort and satisfaction to know and see him as mine with my very own eyes. 
I'm reminded of this in the very last book of the Bible. I know we're in the oldest, but if you read the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, visions of what's to come, one of the very last chapters of all Scripture, chapter 21, verses 3 through 4, it says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I love this right here. Listen to this. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Yes, the God that at certain times Job doubted that he was angry at at times, but in the end, he knew that he deeply loved like no other thing that he was ultimately created for and desired to be with. And like him, we were created in his image for eternity. And when we are finally before him, because of the fulfillment of Jesus's resurrection, how, like it says here, our hearts will faint, how we will be in awe, how we will be thankful that we, as it says in Revelation 21, will dwell with the God that we were made for and only satisfied in to worship and that we will be his people and that he will be our God. And again, going back to that word redemption, I can't but help to think of what he has saved me from the direction that he placed both me and my family now on, although we're not perfect by any means, but can't but help to think what we've been redeemed from. And as one who has experienced redemption from really hard past sin and circumstances, but now has hope and assurance and receiving new life in Christ because of the cross and the resurrection, both here and later, now living in awe and worship of the God that has given me so much yearning for that forever. I read this. Church, I love this. I have full confidence that not only will it happen, I can't wait for it. I can't wait for it. Oh, you know, there's people that fake pastoring and ministry, and I don't know how they do it in some of the toughest counseling situations, preaching at funerals, even weddings, as joyful as it is, to know the difference when Christ is at the center. I yearn for this. I have finally found a home, not just in what we've created and ours, but with God's people. And most importantly, with the Heavenly Father. I finally found a home when I grew up in one of the most dysfunctional, broken ones. And I also remember what it was like before receiving that. And maybe that's some of you in this room who are watching from home. You yearn for that redemption. You yearn for the presence of the Lord a family. You have hope or need hope and a future resurrection. Some of you may feel like you need to be redeemed. What has been bad 
the consequences of the sin that needs to be reversed in that curse. And you have no confidence that your life will change, that you can be forgiven, that what's been bad in your life can be used for good. And unlike Job and others' hope in the resurrection, you may realize that you're scared of that death that you put too much emphasis on the physical things of this world that will go away, whether it be looks, appearance, false identities, your possessions and things, and you need the hope of a resurrection, both physical and spiritual. And maybe for some of you, you're on the brink, brink of or maybe just starting to really feel what is described here as the awe and affection of a God who makes all of that possible through our blessed Redeemer, Jesus Christ. That maybe even right now you're in awe that in spite of your sin that separates you from God, Jesus would come and pay that penalty of sin, death, that we all deserve by sacrificially dying on that cross out of his great love for us and while that stirs up your own affections and love we also know that we're left in awe knowing that three days later he rose from the grave proving and showing he has defeated sin that he is God and that hearing that message that good news of the gospel in spite of our sin that separates us from God, Jesus is that great Savior. And you may be in awe of right now, knowing his love for you, wanting to save you. And you can give your life to him. That is what we celebrate on this day. If everybody can bow your heads and close your eyes. A moment here, the band's going to come in and we're going to sing one last song. But I want to ask, before they do, for you to spend some time with the Lord this morning. I want to ask that you spend some time in prayer with Him. I want to ask, one, if you've never truly received Christ, you hear about that confidence in redemption, that hope for resurrection, that awe and affection to have that relationship with the Lord and you know whether you've grown up in church or maybe this is new that you don't have that but you want that all you have to do in your heart of hearts admit, confess that you are that sinner you believe Jesus died and rose from the grave for that sin. That you turn, repent of that sin, and you receive him as your savior by giving him your life and having saving faith in him right now. Again, there's no magic words to say, but it's in your heart believing that. And so you can communicate and talk to the Lord, and he hears you, and he saves you. I'd say if God is leading you to do that right now, in this moment, in this time, before we sing, that you talk to him and you make him your God as he makes you.
as child. Give him your life. And if you do know him, you come here reminded it is like every Sunday, it's like every day, every week, you have that power of the resurrection, that new life. I'd ask that you thank him right now in prayer. That you thank him. That you can have such confidence that no matter what is going on in your life, such suffering, like Job, you can know, you can know that you have a Redeemer that has the power to turn all things meant for bad into His glory and good. That you have hope of a future resurrection. And that the affection and awe you have will be fulfilled in presence with Him one day. I'll praise God for Jesus' resurrection. Right now, whatever you need to say whatever you need to do with the Lord. Spend some time with them, and then I'll pray, and then we'll sing. Go ahead and do that right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for those who are spending time with you right now with that same awe and affection that Job felt, knowing that you are his redeemer, the hope of that future resurrection. Even with what is going on in our lives right now, we thank you, Lord, for such confidence and such truth such hope to look forward to, but then also to live out right now and give to others around us. God, if there's anybody in here that did not know you, but that received you as Lord and Savior right now, giving you their life, turning from such sin, having saving faith in what you did, dying on the cross, rising from the grave, have your good grace and love, receiving you as a child. We thank you. We know in the scripture says the angels are rejoicing when son, someone passes from death and a separation from you to eternal life and that hope. Again, as we focus on your son right now and sing about that lamb who was sacrificed but then raised, we can't but help to have that same confidence, assurance, hope, and awe. And I pray it goes beyond 
Easter Sunday. And to our days at work, at home, around friends and family, and to those that need it just as much. We thank you. We pray this all in your name, Jesus.